DevPro Journal is an online publication built to assist B2B software developers in growing profitable, sustainable, and fulfilling businesses. Today's podcast is sponsored by DataCap Systems and Zebra Technologies. I'm Mike Monticello, co-founder of DevPro Journal. Today, we're going to be sharing sales advice for software developers. And to help us navigate this topic, we have a special guest, Dan Bratlin, president and chairman of CoCard Marketing Group. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. I uh, appreciate being here. So, Dan, before we begin, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, your role, and uh, CoCard? Sure. Um, you know, CoCard was founded about 20 years ago. Um, by a small group of people um, with the idea of creating a organization similar to a co-op. In our business, Mike, um, it's a very competitive industry. I'm talking about the card side of the business, uh, integrated payments, electronic transactions, card processing. And the whole concept behind CoCard was to pool together a sort of a collaborative brainstorm and, and, and collaborative pricing when it comes to buy rates and everything else. So my role um, is currently, um, I'm an elected president and chairman of the board. It's a member owned organization, which is sort of unique in our business. Um, a lot of people in, on the software side and, uh, and, and also uh, VAR side of the business when it comes to point of sale software, that sort of thing. When these two industries sort of converged a few years back, uh, you know, a lot of the point of sale software software side, they didn't want to get involved on the card side of the business with those dirty, rotten scoundrels. Sure. <laughs> and on the card side of the business, they didn't really want to get involved on the technology side. But through uh, sort of a need of, of market, those two uh, sort of combined. So CoCard is sort of a safe haven for a lot of people that want to enter into the card side of the business, especially on the software or bar side of the business. And my role as president is just um, as more of a, a spokesperson um, and, and you know, trying to captain the ship and keep it going. And it's an elected position each year. So um, still in it after 20 years and uh, happy to be here. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, so let, let's dive into this topic here. In a, in a past presentation that you um, offered at RSPA Inspire earlier this year, you spoke at length about um, like Kaizen and the need for constant change uh, as a VAR or, you know, ISV. Really, I mean, any business, you need to be constantly changing and looking toward the future. For those who weren't lucky enough to be at Inspire, can you talk a little bit about uh, the cycle you shared that developers and IT businesses get into? Yes. You know, I call it um, sort of the continuous, you know, evolution that, uh, many of us, especially owners and entrepreneurs um, who own businesses, we at some point you reach, you start, we're all, we all start in this survival mode when we, when we begin, you know, we're just trying to make enough uh, income to pay our bills, to keep alive. Once we get past that survival mode, uh, we get into what is obviously growth mode, which is a great mode to be in. We're hiring people, income's coming in, we're expanding our offices, our operations, our territories. You know, at some point, almost all organizations reach this sort of uh, leveling off period. 
And the smaller business that you, you're in, like if you're not a small entrepreneur, you eventually will re- get in sort of this comfort zone. We all get there. You know, we, we only grow to the extent of what our self-concept is when it comes to income and business and growth and P&Ls. And, uh, you know, we, we grow to that point and we get this leveling off. And most businesses tend to, you know, get in this comfort zone and they expect this leveling off period to last. Eventually, competition comes in, technology changes, and most businesses will start this decline mode. And it's in that decline mode that uh, we find that most businesses start to begin (laughs) to think about change and and evolution and and coming up with new strategies and, and things like that. And it's really... When I learned about Kaizen, I was a young man. Um, my first business, I promoted seminars, sales training seminars, and I was fortunate to work with some of the best thinkers and in, in the industry, people like Stephen Covey and hmm. Brian Tracy and Tony Robbins and things like that. And I first read about this concept of Kaizen as a young man, and I started thinking about what that meant. What Kaizen really is, is consistent improvement in small increments, Mike. And it's really hard to make changes, big leaps, um, you know, and I, I heard this, this sort of theory that, you know, when a horse wins a horse race by a nose, you know, they win, you know, 10 times the prize money of the horse that finished in second. Now, is the horse that finished in first 10 times better, time times faster? No, they're just a nose better. Yeah. And, and it's so much easier to look at incremental changes. And Kaizen was a Japanese um, philosophy when it came to manufacturing back in the uh, late 70s and the 80s, back in the 1900s, as my kids would say. <laughs> oh, dad, that's back in the 1900s. But, you know, they outstripped our, our, our manufacturing and the General Motors and the Chryslers, and they came in with some minivans and things like that. And the whole idea behind Kaizen is uh, first, getting all the employees involved. First step is get employees from the top on down and gather a list of sort of issues, goals, problems that that we want to that you want to achieve. That's sort of the second step. And then you encourage solutions um, and then choose one specific idea. And this is a constant thing that 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 Kaizen uh, represents. And then you test that solution and then you regularly measure and analyze the results. Um, And if successful, then you adopt that solution and then you repeat that on an ongoing basis. It's basically small incremental changes um, in 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 improvement. And so that's that. And I, I, you know, I I named one of my companies Kaizen Kaizen Properties. I really believe that that that's how you grow a business properly. Uh, Kai being change, Zen being good. I even tried to name, I asked my wife, let's name one of our kids Kaiser. But, you know, that was <laughs> too much pressure. Over, right? She goes, no, that'd be way too much pressure. You know? <laughs> yeah. I'm just trying to get my kid out of bed to mow the lawn. <laughs> but, you know, change every constant change. But I did name my dog, one of my dogs Kaiser. But nice. That's a little bit about Kaiser. Very nice. All right. So um, yeah, I guess a lot of follow-up questions from that. I mean, Number one, I'm thinking, how can how can a business leader tell if they're leveling off or if they're approaching that comfort zone? Is that something that sneaks up on you if you're not paying attention? Or do we all deep down know that maybe we're slacking off a little bit or getting a little too comfortable? Well, a lot of it is 
you know, your straight P&L. You know, you get to a point where your your revenue and your margins are, are leveling off. So it starts with with where your financials are. And also from an ownership standpoint, it's a lifestyle. You know, yeah, my kids are going to private school. I've got the house I want. I'm, I'm going to the games. I'm driving the car I want. And we're taking the vacations we want. You know, I've got some IRAs going. And, you know, things are kind of, I just kind of like where I'm at, where my business is at, the number of employees I have I'm comfortable with. Um, I, you know, I, I'm stopped recruiting and hiring new people and opening up territories and building new stuff. Uh, things just tend to feel comfortable. And, uh, so it's a combination of all those things. Okay. All right. So if, if I'm a, a, an IT company and I, I want to take an approach of doing small incremental changes, what are some areas you see today, uh, where IT companies could be? you know, looking to make changes. I'm thinking, you know, something that pops into mind would be like verticals, maybe like expanding what they're currently, uh, the markets that they're serving. Can you, can you talk a little bit about where they could be looking to make some changes? Yeah. And I think there's some uh, commonality between, you know, sales and let's say technology and IT, you know, in, in, I can speak mainly from a, a marketing standpoint, but I think you can also relate it to, uh, who is your vertical? I know when it comes to continuous change in in uh, from a marketing and sales standpoint or a reseller standpoint, a VAR, you know, we talk about, um, I'm always looking at the next uh, future um, technology that's out there because it's about a three to four year change in my business when it comes to software, such as point of sale software, that sort of thing. Um, so I'm always looking so that uh, when something's coming in, if, if there's change out there, my, I always look at my competitors and what's what's coming into the marketplace. Mm. And rather than waiting till um, they 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 start taking some of my customers away, you know, I try to beat them to the punch and and change my vendors. You know, I always look at you know who are you most loyal to. Are you loyal to your 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 current provider when it comes to technology? Are you loyal to your employees? Um, are you loyal to your customers? Or are you loyal to your P&L? Those are the sort of the four loyalties. And as a business owner, there's really only one loyalty you have to have, and that's the loyalty to your P&L. Mm. You know, if you're not profitable, you're not going to have customers. If you're not profitable, you're going to have to get rid of your employees. You know, a lot of businesses say, an owner say, oh, this employee or this relationship I've had, they've stuck with me through the thick and thin and I, you know, I need to stick with them. And all of a sudden they walk into your office and put in their two weeks notice. So, <laughs> you know, um, you have to really focus in on your business along with your technologies and your product. Um, you know, uh, oftentimes I, I talk to VARs who have exclusive territories and resellers and they're, they're really tied into a specific technology. And uh, they're, they, they've been with this same relationship for many years and they don't want to get out of it because they really like it. They're comfortable. And then um, all of a sudden that relationship gets bought out or gets merged with another business. And yeah. they send you a letter and say, hey, I just want to let you know we just sold to so-and-so company. So really the only focus is on your P&L. So when it comes to change, you've got to be looking at 
all, all aspects of your business, change within your organization and your employees. You know, oftentimes we have employees that are preventing and staff members and, and code builders, whatever that might be, that are preventing you from change. You know, I practice from a leadership standpoint, zero-based thinking. And when I look at our staff and our, our customer service, all parts of my company and, and personnel, I say, you know, knowing what I know now, would I hire this person all over again? Hmm. And if the answer is no, well, then I got to I got to make changes within that that organization. When you talk about verticals, you know, we're all in our comfort zone when it comes to certain um, sectors of the business, certain types of businesses we like to to do business with. I know. From a reseller standpoint, I talk to resellers that only sell enterprise type products to multi-location deals, or they only sell to certain businesses that have so much, so many uh, terminals. You know, you have to have an open mind to be able to expand those verticals um, and, and tap into new verticals and apply that Kaizen, meaning you don't do a drastic change. You do a little test. Whenever I'm going to open up a new vertical, I hire maybe one person, maybe even a temp or an intern to do some prospecting and calling and see if there's uh, what 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 interest there is in this certain. And I test the model before I roll it out. So uh, a constant evolution is really a constant testing in all different areas, whether it be your product, your technology, your personnel or your vertical. Yeah, that's good advice, especially when you think also that there's an opportunity for additional value adds that someone could be providing to their customer. In fact, you know, we've got a sister publication, Everything as a Service Journal. The RSPA has published their list of uh, recurring revenue opportunities. And, you know, there's about 50 of them that we've come up with that fit really well into these markets. And um, you'd probably be crazy to try to add all of them at once. Um, you know, maybe pick one and start slowly adding it and, and go from there. So incremental change. Yeah, Mike, that's very important. You know, you can't be all things to all people or try to create some sort of panacea. We've always led with a value-added product. You know, the, on the card side of the business, it's a very competitive business. You can't just go in and say, like the good old days, you know, let me look at your statement and see how much money we can save you on card processing. You got to go in there with something of value that that person's going to want to um, get involved with you. And then the card processing just comes along with it. I know in the, when the pandemic hit a, a couple of years ago and restaurants were, were basically closing their doors and really going to takeout, we had to shift our gears and really look at not leading you know, we basically shut down our, our sales uh, team when it comes to point of sale software. And we shifted totally over to a value added like online ordering and contactless type of, of, of value to our to our customer base. And we have started approaching new restaurants that are pretty much shut their doors. But the owners wouldn't talk to us about replacing their point of sale system. But they would sure as heck talk to us about a contactless curbside pickup online ordering system uh their own integrated online ordering so they don't have to pay the fees to all the chow nows and the grub hubs and things like that so yes choosing one value added uh and and testing it and, and going after it is is sort of the key you're right on that nice all right so let's shift just a little bit and talk about actual like sales and marketing i know you know that that whole world has changed due to COVID and in-person meetings and things like that are, are now coming back. But, um, you know, 
now virtual selling is is becoming a, a more and more of a thing. What what do you see many companies getting wrong when it comes to selling? Well, you know, I, I do a talk that I sort of came up with called Hunters and Gatherers, and I can sort of size any reseller, bar, provider, even in my business on the car side, either, you know, are you a hunter, meaning hunters go out and they develop and they think about ways to uh, contact businesses, outbound calls, direct selling, you know, you know, boots in the street, you know, selling and going after certain businesses. Gatherers um, tend to spend most of their energies and focus on developing algorithms on Google, making sure they're, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're right on the front page when somebody, you know, uh, searches for uh, their, their product or their type of product, or they do a lot of e-marketing, they, they're doing a lot of maybe even, you know, mailings and things like that. We're uh, trying to get customers to come to them. Um, however, that being said, whether you're a hunter or gatherer, it comes to a point where you have to be able to present your product. And those those sort of principles when it comes to presenting has shifted. As you mentioned, we went from um, I was always sort of a face to face type of salesperson, you know, and every model has the prospecting, presentation, delivery, follow up and then referrals and cross selling. Well, I like to break that sales. If you're a hunter, I like to break that sales process up. I, I would say my biggest key I give businesses is not to try to find salespeople or who are great at prospecting and setting appointments because that's a unique skill. You know, you really have to be a rejection specialist. And then they're great at presenting and building trust and credibility and develop, and, and they know the product knowledge and they know how to present. That's a skill set all by itself. And then they're great at closing and and then they're really good at delivery and follow up and then getting referrals. You know, it's so hard to find people that are great in all those areas. I know resellers and bars that have their salespeople even doing the installation and training and go live. Mm. So I really have this philosophy when it, uh, when it comes to sales that you separate that sales model. I call it assembly line selling. You know, I get folks that, uh, you know, business development specialists that all they do right out of business college or you can get an intern is prospect and set appointments and set demos. Now with virtual selling, with all the technology we have with Zoom and all these technologies, uh, and along with e-signature, which has really revolutionized the closing part of the sale and ACH, where you don't have to collect checks, it's never been easier to do virtual selling and also remote service support. So I, I sort of was forced to go into this because of the pandemic. And I said, well, I wonder if we could still have the same uh, closing uh, formulas and percentages versus selling face-to-face. -face. So we developed these sales presentations around the same model where we have people setting appointments demo. Then I have specialists that actually do the presentation and close. And then I have my uh, different people that obviously handle the installation delivery and everything else. So when we talk about that process, um, you know, it used to be in, when you're face-to-face -face with somebody, and you're, you've got a presentation, you first would develop a lot of 
trust and questions and you'd go in and develop a relationship. We call it relationship selling, yeah. consultative selling, where you sit around and you talk and you, need, you do this, this dissect what their problems are. And then you come up with solutions, present a proposal, and then um, ask for the order. Well, in a virtual sales presentation, I call it the diamond presentation where you, you have to get right to the chase. So when you're when you set a demo up with a prospective prospect or and you're presenting your whatever your product or service is, I think you still need to start off with, uh, number one, you have to build credibility, but you have to keep it short and sweet. Um, who you are, what you do, uh, how long you've been in business, um, maybe give some examples of other customers you, you work with, how many customers you deal with, um, and and really look at, uh, in a short period of time, building that credibility. Too many people start asking the customer questions when they don't know anything about you. So I always start off with the first part of that virtual presentation is, tell, is telling me about you. I show them a picture. Everything's visual. So show them a picture of your office building, maybe a picture of your staff, uh, a list of how many customers you have, how long you've been in business, you know, that, that sort of thing. The second part, obviously, is you need to go through some questions, uh, have your questions organized, have them delivered, you know, how many employees you have, how many staff, if you're selling software, you know, uh, tell me how, tell me a little bit about your business, how you get started, you know, who, who else besides yourself makes a final decision, those type of critical questions uh, when it comes to closing the sale. Hmm. And then when you demo your product virtually, it's important you don't spend an hour or so on that presentation. Um, I, if you're presenting to a, a decision maker, an owner, and they're not really on the IT side, you want to stick with what I call, you know, just the main key features of whatever your product is. However, when you're doing a virtual terminal where you're doing most of the talking and they're doing most of the listening, you have to keep their attention. And the, some of the keys to keeping the attention in the virtual presentation is, A, use their name, Mike, early and often. <laughs> so, Mike, you know, when you use your name, they, they tend to perk up. So you're always, when you go to a new, for, so, so Mike, do you see how that works? Can you see how that could help your business? And you, what I just used there was, is what I call tie downs. So whenever you present in a virtual presentation a certain feature or benefit, you have to tie it down with things like, does that make sense, Mike? Mike, can you see how that could help your business? Mike, are you with me on this? Um, that gets the yes momentum going. You have to get a yes response out of the, the, the person who's looking at your, your screen and you're presenting to throughout this presentation so that they're actively listening to what it is you're saying. And then next, you know, oftentimes in virtual presentations, the closing ratio tends to go down because you're not in front of the customer and it's easy for them to sort of put you off once they get all the information. They've seen your demo, they see what you do, and then they know, you know, the next step after the product presentation is you typically, they want to know, well, how much is it? Yeah. What, what's the fee? You know, what's the bottom line here? We have a, before we get to that, as soon as we're done with the, virtual uh, demo, before they ask us about price or anything else, we tend to jump to the first question, which is, I call it a trial <laughs> close, which is, Mike, can you see how having this system in your business could benefit you? If they don't say yes to that, 
there's no reason to go in. Yeah. So you, you, you know, you have to get a yes there. And then the, obviously the next thing, Mike, is you're wondering is how much is it? <laughs> and then you go into your, 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 what I call your investment. I never say price or cost. I always say total investment. I call those rejection words. I never say contract. I say paperwork agreement. I never say deal. I say opportunity, things like that. But uh, so you have to get that clearing question. And then when you present your total investment, it's also good to present what the competitors are, knowing what the competitors are. Um, here's what our competitors' fees are. Hopefully you've developed something that is competitive or better than your competitors. And then you present your your proposition, your total investment. Always after you present your total investment in a virtual presentation, you then do what I uh, return on investment. If whatever you're presenting doesn't have enough benefit to pay for itself over and over again, well, then I tell my salespeople they're not they're not a good prospect for it. If what we have to offer them isn't a benefit to it, at a minimum, pay for itself and whether it be cost savings, um, um, you know, increased productivity, increased profits, uh, there has to be some benefit that outweighs the total investment. So that way they come back to what this is an investment. It isn't a cost. It isn't a price. And then lastly, you know, I know so many people that are super at presenting their product and service. They know it back and forth. They're great at the demonstration. They're great at going through, showing them the proposal and the total investment. However, they're afraid to ask for the order. Hmm. And it's important that you, you beat them to the punch on this. Once they see your total investment and your total proposition, typically the prospect is going to want to take control, especially if they're an owner, they're drivers, they like to lead the ship. They're going to say, great, Mike. Hey, uh, this is really good. I'm going to talk it over with my partners and my staff here. Why don't you give me a call next week? And, uh, and, then, um, and then I'm very interested. This sounds really good. But give me, why don't you give me a call next week? Well, that, that doesn't really work. Yeah. We know that. <laughs> Once we get back to them next week, a probably we're not going to get a hold of them, and you know we're excited because we finished the call and thinking, God, wow, that went great. And he, I tell my other people in this in the office here, oh, this is going to be a good one. I think they're going to go ahead with this. And then a week goes by, and they forgot everything we talked about. They forgot about all the benefits, and they're back in what they're doing, and they don't take our call. And pretty much this whole thing flies out the window. Mm-hmm. So the key is, is to ask for a commitment at the end of your presentation. It doesn't have to be the final commitment. We use what is called the next step approach. And the next step approach in a virtual presentation is critical. So once, you div- once you've finished your product presentation and you, you've then spelled out the total investment and did your ROI return on investment, you have to immediately beat them to the punch and just say, now, Mike, At this point, let me just tell you what the next step is. If this is something you're at least considering, which it looks like you are, right? Yeah. So you have to get a yes there, Mike. You know, basically, if they've stuck with you this long, well, yeah, it's a very soft approach. Of of course, they're considering it. Sure. Yes. Okay. Let me. So we have a step by step process. The first step, Mike is we simply fill out some applications. You know, there's no cost or obligation to that. That takes me about five minutes here. I'll just walk you through that real quick. And it takes me about two days to get this process and get it approved. And then I'll call you back, Mike, and say, hey, everything's set up to really go for the next step. 
Uh, and Mike, that gives you time to think this over, talk it over with whoever you want. And then once you give the approval to go to the next step, the next step is we set up a time uh, to do an installation. We'll, um, and that takes about two to three weeks. We'll build your menu. We'll, we'll um, then set, do a training, uh, set up a training time. And we'll come in and we'll go live. We basically, Mike, walk them through the whole process so they know what's involved. And then at the end of walking them through this process, whatever your process is, when it comes to getting the customer set up, we then end it with what I call the final close, which is critical. And it goes like this. So, Mike, if this is something you're considering, which obviously you are, um, why don't we at least get started with the application process? Um, does that make sense? And that you have to then ask for that order uh, at the end. So why don't we, why don't we at least get started with the application process? Is does that sound fair? That's the other thing you'd say. Does that sound fair? Hmm. It's really hard for them to say no about. Well, yeah, let's go ahead and do that. So that's the final ask. So so Mike, since this is something you're you're at least considering, and since there's no cost or obligation in the in the getting the application started, why don't we at least get started with that? Does that sound fair? Hmm. And it's really hard for them not to say that doesn't sound fair. And then you simply have on your screen the the paperwork, the application that you can show them or you email them and walk them through the process and get that e-signature. So those are sort of the steps when it comes to virtual selling. Boy, that's brilliant. I mean, if you do a good job during your presentation of showing the benefits and then you continually tie it down, and at the end, you go right into showing them how easy the process can be. Everything's fresh in their mind. Additionally, you've, you've got them to confirm that there is ROI there, um, that the solution essentially is paying for itself. You're right. I don't, I don't see how someone could say no to that. Well, that's, yeah, that's our goal. And uh, what, we have a very high turn rate once we get someone past, when we get to a demo situation, um, because they're usually qualified at that point, pre, pre-qualified. Uh, it's a rare situation where we don't um, actually close the sale. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about customer retention. So, you know, you win this customer, you've got them. How do you, how do you keep them? Um, you know, what kind of advice can you share to improve customer loyalty? You know, that's, I go back to loyalty strategies and customer service and, and it's really important. You know, I, I, early on in my career, you know, I learned that it, it costs them about, about six times more on a customer that's lost versus a, a gain. You know, you, we spend all this time and money and effort to uh, attract new business. And, and when we lose a customer, it's, it's the same value as bringing on a new customer. And, and so I spend most of my time now thinking about retainment of my current customers. I still focus on creating new business, but it costs me a lot more to lose a customer. And, you know, the other statistics are, you know, basically th there's been many studies on this, this part of the business. You know, 4% of unhappy customers, um, you know, you only hear from about 4% of, of customers that are unhappy. Most customers will leave you without even letting you know mm. uh, they're unhappy. Um, so basically 90% of your customers go away quietly. 
And of those 96%, the studies show that only 91, you know, 91% never returned. So you might be able to get back maybe four or 5%. And here's the, the, the critical part of this now in the social media reviews and things like that, the average customer you lose or is unhappy tells eight to 10 other people, um, you know, about their uh, un, their 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 unhappy experience with your company, so mm. it's it's really critical you keep customers happy. I I have a principle in my company where we bite the bullet even on a customer I don't have to. We have a contract; it's thirty six months, and it's I have a customer that's going to leave me, and they're maybe what for whatever reason, and 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 I, there's a termination fee, and and I can see they're not happy. I will. You know, even though contractually I could I could I could tell them, no, you owe the the, the early termination fee on the contract or this many months and, and things like that. I will bite that bullet and, and make sure that that customer knows that even though we have a contract, I'm going to we're going to if you weren't happy, we're going to let you out of that agreement. No harm, no fouls. Now that customer even will refer business to us because so we turn an unhappy customer that's leaving. Instead of telling eight to ten other unhappy people how unhappy you are, they're telling people, you know, I, you know, it didn't work out with Coker, but I have to tell you that 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 company was so good and EPS, and we're gonna, and they refer actually refer people to us. So you have to be prepared these days to to bite the bullet. And uh, now, if you solve their problems right away, and that is the key, you know, seventy percent will buy again if their problem is solved immediately. Hmm. Um, and so it's really it, when it comes to customer service and customer support, it really comes down to speed and, and how fast can you take care of a problem? And these days, you know, we think of yourself, Mike, when when companies knock your socks off with how fast they deal with the situation, um, that's impressive. You know, we'll have customers call my customer service staff and with a problem, we want to make sure we answer the phone, we get back to them right away. We don't want to say we'll have a technician get back to you within 24 hours, um, you know, and when it comes to customer retainment, we have sort of a five step process. Number one is we proactively stay in touch with our customer base. We don't wait for them to call us when there's a problem. Oftentimes it's too late. You know, we'll we'll find that we lose a customer and then we'll call them and, and they'll say, oh, yeah, we 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 went with this other provider because they could do this and they could do that and they could do this. And we don't have that with you. Well, they didn't even know that we could have had this online order. and We could we had this other stuff. They just didn't know it. So what we started to do is making sure that we contact our customers proactively on an ongoing basis. The second thing we do. I'm sorry, is, Dan. Real, real fast. How how often do you reach out to them proactively? That's a great question. And you know, we have in our company uh, what I call the ABC model. And all top companies do this. They rank their customers. Airlines do it. You could be a diamond, a platinum, a bronze, a gold. You know, um, and and we we segment our customer service in our base and our contact management system. So when any customer calls and we pull them up on the screen, we know if they're an A customer, a B customer, or a C customer. And that's basically based on revenue, right? Or, or, or profit. And my, all my whole staff knows when an A customer calls that all, all hands on deck, you know, we'll send them a free printer. We'll, we'll get, you know, we're not going to lose that A customer. 
Uh, now, it's not to say we don't treat the C customers great, but we know we're going to do whatever we can to preserve that A customer. And back to your question, we contact our A customers once a month, our B customers once a quarter, and our C customers twice a year. So, um, and how are you contacting them? Is that telephone or is that just like yeah, an email so newsletter? We, I hire a person on staff that this could be, again, a college person, somebody uh, um, who's right out of college, hourly, comes in for a few hours a day, even part-time and calls through our A customers, our B customers, just say, hey, I'm just following up, see how things, see how we're doing. Can I answer any questions? And it's interesting how often we uncover situations where, yeah, you know, it just so happened somebody made a call and they, they, they say they have this uh, pay at the table type uh, software and and we were really interested in that. Do you guys offer that? And then they'll refer that over to the salesperson or, you know, they have a question about payments and things that we can take care of their situation right away. But it's really a customer service call. It's just, hi, my name's Sue and I'm calling I'm, uh, from EPS and we're your, we're, your, we're your provider and I'm just making a courtesy call, see how things are going. Do you have any questions or concerns? You know, um, those type of things. So what are your thoughts on taking those B's and C's and contacting them more frequently to try to turn them into A's? Well, it, it's hard to, when it comes to A's, it's really revenue. Okay. So um, we can't turn a B or C and, and revolutionize their business so that they become an A. Um, when it comes to their how much revenue they're generating and growing and that sort of thing. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Uh, so c please continue on then. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you on that one. You know, and then, and then, so it's really a drip drip situation. Um, you know, and, and we also, we will often do things where we give something without asking something in return. Um, you know, when it comes to customer service and support, you know, the minimum is doing what's expected, you know, delivering your product on time, being there. You know, the next step when I look at organizations, it's it's doing something beyond uh, what they expected, like, you know, you know, over delivering on something, you know, giving them extra training that they didn't expect that mm -hmm. sort of thing. And then the top companies, they're into more, uh, you know, customer amazement where, I make sure my A customers get tickets to the Twins games, you know, each year or, you know, you know, do something unexpectedly to your A customers or and then even B's get this basket once a year, a holiday basket or things like that. So deliver things that are unexpected that they wouldn't necessarily like, wow, this is nice. So doing those extra things that are unexpected is really critical in building that customer loyalty. Fantastic. Well, Dan, thanks so much for sharing all this information. I feel like if people took just even a few of these nuggets of wisdom, they would have more sales success. Um, so, th so thank you. Um, but be before I let you go, I just wanted to ask a follow-up question because even if someone does take all your advice here, um, you know, there's there are going to be failures. And during your presentation at Inspire, you talked about the joy of failure, and I thought that was particularly interesting. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, advice that you have for young salespeople out there concerning failure? Absolutely. Uh, and I really think this is the critical um, to anyone's success. When I look at all the uh, top successful, self-made successful people I've been able to, to meet, I've been fortunate enough to get to know throughout my career from promoting some of the top achievers in, in every industry. And I noticed a common thread amongst all of them. 
you know, they were able to take problems and situations and, 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 and failures and, and really turn them into positive situations. You know, Mike, we've all had a situation that, that we get blindsided with. Um, and, and we look at it from a business perspective and say, oh, my God, this is a disaster. What am I going to do? And, and, and we lose sleep over it. And we think we're going to, you know, we, we are all stressed out. And, and then, you know, you, you we'll, make, we'll, we'll survive. We'll go through. A few years later, we'll come to a point where we'll say, you know what? Boy, am I ever happy that happened. If that didn't happen, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. Or I wouldn't have be selling this product I'm selling today. Or we wouldn't be doing this today. So knowing that's the case, that in most situations, you know, something eventually ends up happening for the better. The most successful people I know, they're able to take that time frame and reduce it almost to the immediate. You know, I have a saying when anything happens that I, that my, appears to be very negative or, or, or not good. And I, I, I say in my mind, that's good. That's good. You know, we had a situation, Mike, that, that uh, the three words you never want to hear in our business, which is, you know, you've been hacked. And, you know, this was a few years ago and I got that call. I remember I was playing, I was on the golf course and my, I, did, I, I couldn't get to my phone, but I finally got to the parking lot. And my, my person says, oh my God, you know, we've been hacked. And, and, and all of our, you know, we have you know 900 stations that, that, you know, there's been this Trojan and they're taking the credit cards and things like that. I'm like, oh, oh my God. But I, I said to myself, okay, this is good. This is good. <laughs> okay, this is good. How can that be good? I don't know, but I had to call forensics. We, we got MasterCard involved and, and, and they said, fortunately, they caught it within 24. It wasn't there early. So I go, oh, that's good. That's good. Okay. We got it. We caught it early. Okay. That's good. But now the bad news is we got to come in here. We got forensics and then you got to go to a service one provider and they got to do these audits and it cost me a hundred grand a year. Oh, okay. But that's good. Okay. That's good. That's good. And then we do, you know, we, we, we went through that. And to, now three years later, I can honestly say, Mike, that we're a better company and we're much more secure. And I'm actually happy that that hack, that hack happened. I actually have, so something good did happen. But going back to your question about the joy of failure, I learned this early on as a salesperson, that, that in sales, failure is a, a must. You have to get so many no's to get a yes. And in business, I find this the same thing as a business owner. Um, I had to fail on certain, when you apply the, those Kaizen measurements and testing tools, you'll often find that a lot of them don't work. You know, until you find one that does. So I would practice these, what I call the joy of failure. And I, these were sort of self, I would repeat these things over and over again. The first one is, is that I never see failure as failure, but only as a learning experience. You know, we all learn from our failures. If we didn't have them, we wouldn't have these experiences. We learn what not to do. You know, the second one I always used to say, and I still do today is, I never see failure as failure, but only as the negative feedback I need to change course in my direction. You know, that's the key. You, it's a road and the failure will then cause you to move and change course into a direction that's more positive. The next thing I, use, I say all the time is I never see failure as failure, but only as an opportunity to practice and perfect my performance. You know, and that was really critical in sales. When I would leave a sales presentation and it didn't go so well. I would always say two things, you know, what did I do right? 
And if I had the sales call to do over again, what would I do differently? And I learned from those experiences. And I got an opportunity to practice on that person. I practiced something new. And then lastly, I never see failure as failure, but only as a game I must play to win. Failure is part of the game and you embrace it. That's why I call it the joy of failure. So anyways, Mike, that's, that's kind of the, the joy of failure. It's awesome. Awesome. Well, Dan, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being a guest here on the podcast today. Um, I hope to have you back in the, in the future and we could talk about some of these things in more detail. Super, Mike. And uh, thanks for having me today. And I think you're doing a great thing. This is a great podcast for the community. And once again, thank you very much. And thanks to our listeners for joining us. As a reminder, DevPro Journal is an online publication built to assist B2B software developers in growing profitable, sustainable, and fulfilling businesses. To read more information on this topic and many others, visit devprojournal.com. Finally, we'd like to thank today's podcast sponsors, Datacap Systems and Zebra Technologies. Thanks and have a great day.